As we started this series last week, we talked about how Christ's kingdom, which we are part of as citizens, undeservingly but certainly, his kingdom seems totally upside down compared to the kingdoms and the systems of the world. We don't have to look very far to see that being true. It's, it's pretty blatant, pretty obvious. And there's no better example of that than the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And specifically, there's no better example even within the Sermon on the Mount of that being true, the fact that his kingdom is upside down when compared with the systems of the world. There's no better example than the section of teaching that serves as the sermon's introduction, which is the Beatitudes. That's what we started last week, and we're going to continue on with that. Last Sunday I said that the Beatitudes show us the attitudes that should be seen in every Christian. They also show us how to act, how to be, as we go through life in this messed up, upside-down world. And that's what we're going to see this week as we focus on Matthew 5, 7 through 12. Matthew 5, 7 through 12. I hope you will look at that with me as I go along in whatever version and translation of God's Word you have. Matthew 5, 7 through 12. And I'll be reading this text from the CSB, just to give you a reference point there for what you're going to be hearing. Matthew 5, 7 through 12, beginning in verse 7. God's Word blessed, and that's the Greek word makarios, and that doesn't just mean happy. Uh, it goes much, much deeper than that. In fact, it means deep, lasting joy. It's, a, it's an abiding thing. It's a contentment. It's an anchor. Blessed or blessed makarios are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This beatitude speaks to those who have already received mercy. Guess what? That's you and me. We've all received lots and lots of mercy, haven't we? Aren't you thankful that we have? And this speaks to those who have already received the divine, unbelievable mercy of God. And though it might not be obvious at first, it's actually connected to the Beatitudes mentioned in the previous verses that we spent time on last week. Here's what I mean. It's a divine work of mercy to realize our spiritual poverty and need. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a divine work of mercy for us to realize that, to be stripped of our pride, and to realize, I have nothing. I need you, Jesus, that's a divine work of mercy. That's not something you do on your own or that naturally happens to the sinful, depraved heart. It's a divine work of mercy to realize our spiritual poverty and need. It's a divine mercy to be able to mourn over our sin and to then experience the comfort of being forgiven by God, and so on and so forth. You connect this with all the other Beatitudes that came before it. It's a mercy that we have been given, a mercy that is true of us, that defines us. Therefore, what Jesus wants us, what he wanted his original hearers to understand is this. We give mercy because mercy was given to us. 
We give mercy because mercy was given to us. And the reverse is also true. If we aren't merciful to others, which unfortunately is often the case, if we aren't merciful to others, then it's a clear sign that we are not fully understanding or we haven't ever fully understood how much mercy was given to us by God and how much it cost Him to give it. When we are in that mode of operating, we're just like the wicked, unforgiving servant that Jesus used as an illustration in Matthew 18. You know, the one that was forgiven much. He was forgiven actually... 200,000 years worth of personal debt. Written off, forgiven. In eternity's worth of debt, he was forgiven. Then he turned right around with that mercy he was given, and did he give it to the person that owed him? No. In fact, he grabbed him, the story goes, he grabbed him by the throat, threw him in prison, and said, you will stay there until you pay me every last cent. His fellow servant. His fellow servant owed him about two months' worth of salary. But he couldn't bring himself to forgive that even though he had been forgiven an eternity's worth. We're just like that, friends. When we aren't merciful to everyone around us, when we are not gracious, when we don't show the mercy we've been given, we're exactly like that wicked servant. That's what Jesus wanted us to understand by saying, blessed are the merciful. You are going to be fulfilled. You are going to be truly joyful. You're going to be content as you give mercy because you're going to make this connection. Wow, look at the mercy I've been given. What a joy it is to give the mercy I've been given. That's how it's supposed to operate with those that are citizens of the kingdom. That's the kingdom way. Let's keep going. Verse 8, blessed are the pure In heart, for they will see God. With this statement, Jesus is showing his concern with the true condition of our truest heart. The true condition of our truest heart. He didn't say, Blessed are those that are in compliance with the commandments of the law. Blessed are those who are in alignment with all the rituals and regulations and rules and traditions. Why didn't he say that? Why did he say, blessed are the pure in heart? It's because he wants us to know, this is so important, he wants us to know that really being pure in heart involves our innermost self. It's about an internal purity, much more than external conformity. That's what being pure in heart's all about. An internal purity, much more than an external conformity. Now, thankfully, being pure in heart does not require a perfect heart. Being pure in heart does not require a perfect heart. And that's really good news because none of us would be able to ever be pure in heart if that was the case. We would all have to wait until heaven, until glory, to be able to be pure in heart. And that would really contradict what Jesus is saying here in this beatitude. Remember, he's talking to fallen people. He's talking to his followers. He's talking to his disciples. But they are 
fallen, they're weak, they're sinful, they're human. Wouldn't make much sense to tell them to be pure in heart here and now if it required a perfect heart, would it? You follow me on that? I mean, that doesn't track at all. If a pure in heart is synonymous with a perfect heart, there's no reason for Jesus to say that. So it doesn't mean that you have to have a perfect heart to have a pure heart. But it's still not something we have naturally. It's still not something we can produce ourselves. And yet, it's still what's required. A pure in heart is required for a real relationship with God. You want to see God? You want to know God? You want to experience God? You want to encounter God? I think you do. You're here. And, and it's good that we want that. And here's side note, another good part of news. We don't have to wait till heaven when we are face to face with God to see God, as it were. I'm not talking about physically, literally before our eyes, but come on, think of the times that you have in an incredible measure of grace on his part where you have personally experienced God in your life, undeniably at work, where he has revealed himself to you personally in some really fantastic ways. Think about those times. It's a thing of grace that you're able to do that. And it's only as God allows you and works in you to have the purity of heart to be able to see him that you're able to do that. So we don't have to wait until heaven, but nonetheless, in every aspect, a pure heart is what is required to come before God, to be in his presence in any way. It's still what's required for a real relationship with God. Psalm 24, 3 through 4 points us to that fact. Psalm 24, 3 through 4 says this, and it's a really important, serious, and scary question. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy, totally absent of sin, place? Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And here's the answer, and it's on the surface, it's grim. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully. Uh-oh. That's just about everybody that you've ever met, and including yourself, right? So here's quite the predicament. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who's not appealed to what is false. Who's not sworn deceitfully. That's quite the problem. Because that's humanity. So what's the solution? The solution is to stop trying to make your heart pure by yourself. Because you can't. I can't. We can't. So stop it. (laughs) Stop trying to make your heart pure. That's not the answer. That's not the solution. Here's the answer. Here's the solution. Psalm 51.10. David writing. And this is such an amazing psalm of what it really means to be repentant. Really remorseful of sin and to really experience grace. Psalm 51.10. Create in me. Notice that? 
You can't do it yourself. You can't make your heart pure. So here's the solution. Look upward. Look away from yourself and away from other people. Create in me. Do a supernatural work. Do what I cannot do. Do what I can't bring about. Create in me a clean or a pure heart. Oh God. See, that's where our focus is. God who created all of the universe, all of this from nothing, it's going to Him and asking Him for His same creative power to be at work in us to create in us what we can't create. Create in me a clean, a pure heart, O God, and renew. How is something renewed? It's something that keeps happening, right? Renewal means it's an ongoing, perpetual process. You know, renewable energy, everybody's all over that, right? It's renewed, it's fresh, it's continual. So create in me a clean heart, oh God, give me a clean heart. That's an initial thing, that's an initial action. But then notice, keep on doing it, is what he's saying. Create in me this pure heart and then keep renewing it. Renew a right or a pure, a steadfast, a single-minded spirit within me. Church, that is what needs to be the prayer of our hearts and expressed from our lips every single day. We need to not let a day go by where we don't say this to God because we need it every day. Every day we're in desperate need of this kind of thing happening in us. A pure heart being renewed in us. Doing what we can't do. That's the answer. So, bringing it back to what Jesus is saying and bringing it back to the fact that He's the one speaking here on this mount, this Sermon on the Mount, and these Beatitudes are coming from His lips. Here's the connection. A pure heart happens by first surrendering your heart to Jesus for Him to make new. We have this idea, and it's a wrong and harmful idea, that Jesus came to just kind of upgrade us. That Jesus came to just kind of make us a little better version of ourselves. You know, the me we already are, He just wants to kind of upgrade us a little bit, sharpen us up, fine-tune. That's not at all why Jesus came. Jesus came to give us an entirely new heart. To make us an entirely new person. It's not like our cell phones and our smart devices, you know, where they get incrementally upgraded every so often and there's a new software update and, oh, we're making it a little bit better, but it's by and large the same thing. That's not what it is at all. Jesus came and wants to make you new, entirely new. Take your heart that is not pure away from you and give you his heart, the heart of purity, a heart of righteousness. It's all about him making us new. And so a pure heart happens by first surrendering, yielding our heart to Jesus, saying, here, take it, take it, make it new. You're the only one who can. And then as we do that, it's about daily, notice I said daily, Daily participation with the Holy Spirit to purge our heart from the daily pollution of sin. See how that works? 
We give Jesus our heart. We surrender our heart for him to make it new. And then after that, it's daily, constantly participating with the Spirit of God to purge our heart of all that pollution of sin. That's what it means to be pure in heart. Let's keep going. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Since Jesus is the Prince of Peace, doesn't it make sense then that every Christian should be a peacemaker? I mean, that's what Jesus is. He is the Prince of Peace. We just spent a whole month, December, off and on, thinking about that, hearing that phrase, singing about it, looking at verses about that. The Prince of Peace is what Jesus is. And so if we are followers of Christ, if we are Christians, we're in Him, we're part of Him, then every Christian should be a peacemaker. What else is a peacemaker? Where have you heard that term before? Yeah, gun, usually associated with the old Westerns, right? I hate Westerns, so it's not like I sit around watching them. But my grandmother loved them. That's all she ever wanted to watch. And so it kind of got ingrained in me, burned into my brain. You know, people like John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. And there was this really big gun called a peacemaker. And the idea was, oh, I'll make peace all right. I'll eliminate every threat. And so often, that's how we look at making peace, unfortunately. We have that kind of mindset, like, I'm going to eliminate every threat and every source of opposition, and then we'll have peace. And that's certainly the way the world looks at it. That's the way the world goes about it. Carry a big stick so you can make peace really quick. That's not how it's supposed to be in the kingdom of Christ. That's not what is supposed to mark the citizen of the kingdom that we are as Christians. Here's what God's Word says about this. Romans 12, 17 through 18. The Apostle Paul writing there says this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Well, there's a contradictory thought to our culture. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. And then he just keeps lowering the boom. If possible, as far as it depends on you. So in other words, it doesn't matter what other people are doing. You think about yourself. If possible, as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Everyone? Everyone. Not just Live at peace with those that it's easy to live at peace with. Not just live at peace with those who are peaceable toward you. Live at peace as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Whew. Hard, right? Counterintuitive. If anybody understood that and yet still believed that this is what we are called to be and to do, aside from the Apostle Paul, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an amazing man of God. If you've never read his biography, you should. If you've never read his works, namely, especially The Cost of Discipleship, you should. It will wreck your life. Warning. It will wreck your heart, but it'll do so in a, in a needful, good way. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer 
during uh, World War II, he was a German pastor, and he encouraged the church in Germany to stand up to Hitler, to the Nazi regime. He encouraged leaders around him to stand up against the evil that Hitler was introducing. And when more and more people didn't, more and more people went over to the Nazi philosophy and followed Hitler, he still remained strong. He stood up against him, preached against the evils of what was being promoted. Eventually, he was taken to a concentration camp, and then ultimately he was hung as a traitor. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to say about being peacemakers. The followers of Christ have been called to peace, and they must not only have peace, but make it. His disciples keep the peace by choosing to endure suffering themselves rather than inflict it on others. They maintain fellowship where others would break it off. They renounce hatred and wrong. In so doing, they overcome evil with good and establish the peace of God in the midst of a world full of war and hate. May it be so of us. Continuing on in the Beatitudes, verses 10 and 11, Matthew 5, 10 and 11, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, being persecuted because of righteousness, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, this goes back to all the other Beatitudes. As we are pure in spirit, as we are mourning and grieving over our sin, as we are being humble and gracious towards people and and comforting others, and, and as we're pursuing righteousness, and as we are doing just all these things that Jesus is saying, as we're pursuing all of this, we're pursuing purity of heart, and we're making peace, none of those things are going to resonate with the unbelieving, sinful, evil, hostile world. They're not going to give us a prize for being meek. They're not going to give us a prize for hungering and thirsting after righteousness. In fact, they're going to come against that, and they're going to try to silence it and stamp it out. So being persecuted because of righteousness, this is not just a sudden derail on the part of Jesus where he's talking about all these other things, and then all of a sudden he switches to persecution. It's a direct connection. He's saying, as you do these things, as what I am saying to you in each of these statements is true of you and true about you, it's not going to be met with grace and with gladness in the world. It's going to be met with harshness and hostility and even persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you. Not if, but when. Notice that. When. When they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Insert confused look 
And as the people there on the mount are hearing Jesus saying that, I'm imagining they have a a look of confusion and like wondering, what in the world did I just hear? What did I just hear him say? Did Jesus really say what I think he said? And you might be thinking that. Did Jesus really say what I think he just said? Certainly, I would imagine several looks of bewilderment and shock on the faces of the people that heard him say that. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Huh? Come again? But yes, yes, Jesus did really say what they thought he said, what you think he said. Yes, yes, he did. Here's why he said that. Persecution should be every Christian's expectation. That's hard to hear, I know. It's hard to say. But it's true. Persecution should be every Christian's expectation. Not the exception, which is how we so often think about it. Especially here in the West. Persecution? What's that? Oh, yeah, that's that thing that happens to Christians in other parts of the world. But it's becoming increasingly clear, the farther we go through history, the longer the Lord Jesus waits to restore all things, it's becoming increasingly clear that persecution absolutely should be in some form, maybe not to the same degree as others, but in some form and in some way, persecution should very much be every Christian's expectation. And that's exactly what God has made clear in His Word. Second Timothy 3.12 says that. Here's what it says. Second Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, will be persecuted. Again, hard to hear, I know, but it's not just me saying it. It's the truth of God's Word, and it wasn't something that was specific to the first century. It's not something specific to the second or the third centuries. It's not something that's meant to be exclusive or will be exclusive to those other countries. It means no matter when you live, where you live, if you're living a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're pursuing Him, you're becoming more and more like Him, then guess what? The world will meet that not with applause, but with persecution. Despite that, despite that, We know this. Real Christians have real joy in really bad circumstances. Real Christians, true, authentic believers, have real joy in really bad circumstances, even persecution. We know that by looking at the pages of Scripture with the apostles, people like Paul, and Peter, and James, and even before them in the Old Testament, the prophets. We know that there was joy even in 
the unthinkable circumstances of persecution, torture, and death. There was joy. It's not even limited to them. We look at people in more recent history that as they go to the executioner's whatever it is that they are using to execute them, when they go to that moment, page after page has been written of testimony of martyrs in every century that face their execution not with fear, not with anger, not with hostility or trepidation. It's met with joy and worship. Because real Christians, by the power of the Spirit of God in them, have real joy in really bad circumstances. Why? Why is that true? How? How is that true? How is that possible? Why can Christians facing persecution, even extreme persecution to the point of death, why can, why should Christians have joy? Why did Jesus say, you are blessed? Blessed are those who are persecuted. You are blessed when they insult, persecute, say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Why did he say that? Why can he say that? Well, the answer comes in verse 12. See, he wasn't done He didn't leave it there. Verse 12, he gave us the reasons why. Matthew 5, 12. Be glad and rejoice. In that context, the context of suffering, the context of persecution for being righteous. Be glad and rejoice. Why, Jesus? Why are you saying that? Because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, we have reasons why within what Jesus is saying, why we can and should rejoice even in something like persecution and extreme opposition. It's because it points to a promised inheritance. I want you to see these reasons built within what Jesus said here in just these verses, these closing verses of the Beatitudes. From verses 10 through 12, there's very specific reasons why we can and should rejoice in our persecution, why we are, in fact, blessed even when we are persecuted, or because we are persecuted, why we are blessed. Number one reason is because it points to a promised inheritance, Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You see, that's the promised inheritance. And so when we face persecution of any type, it's pointing to a promised inheritance that is ours, that we're part of that. We have the kingdom of heaven that we're part of waiting for us. So rejoice in that. Secondly, Persecution gives us the great honor of suffering for the Savior that suffered so much for us. We see that in verse 11. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. That's the key. What honor it is that Jesus gives His own to be able to suffer for Him knowing how much He suffered for us. There's nothing that will compare. And if we are persecuted, it's just this little, it's this little way of kind of repaying in a small, small scale what he did infinitely for us. 
then another reason why those that are persecuted are blessed is because the awaiting glory far outweighs the weight of current suffering. The awaiting glory far outweighs the weight of current suffering. That's in the first part of verse 12. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. There's something more. This isn't it. There's a greater weight of glory coming to borrow from C.S. Lewis. And then last but not least, persecution proves that we are part of a long, holy legacy. We are part of a long and holy legacy. The end of verse 12 says that, For that is how they, the world, the unbelievers, the evil system, and the kingdom of this world, that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you're in a long line, so take heart. Take courage. You're not alone. You're not the only one that has gone through this. You won't be the only one that's going to go through this. There's a long, holy line and legacy of those that stayed true to Christ, to the gospel, to the very end. All this means this. It all comes down to this. Don't miss this. If we claim to know Jesus, but never experience any persecution, then we are either too much like the world or we are too isolated from it. I'm going to say it again. If we claim to know Jesus but never experience any persecution of any type, then we are either too much like the world or we are too isolated from it. Because if you're like Jesus, you're not going to be like the world and they don't like that. And if you're too cut off from the world, you just live up on a mountain somewhere like a monk in a monastery, that's not good either. Both things will avoid persecution, absolutely. If you're like the world, they're not going to persecute you. If you're cut off from the world, they're not going to persecute you. But church, that's not what we're called to be. We're not called to either of those. We're called to be like Jesus and to show him to a world. And what did the world do to Jesus? They crucified him. So if you're like Jesus and you're showing Jesus, they're not going to like that. That's not going to be okay with them and be prepared for that. If you're cut off from the world, that's not what we're called to be either. We're going to see that next week as we keep going in the Sermon on the Mount. What we're to be as part of the kingdom. What that really means as it relates to the world. I'm not saying we go looking for persecution. I'm not saying we run to it. I'm not saying we should be giddy about it and just really want it to happen. Not saying that. But I am saying that if we're really living like Jesus, then persecution will be the natural result and the outcome. And we need to understand that. We need to accept that. We need to embrace it. And we can only do that, just as these people could only do that, we can only do that by the power of the Spirit of God. It's the only way it's possible. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that though this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount was given over two millennia ago, it is still so, so relevant and applicable to us. Help us to see it that way. Help us to make the application that we need, that you would like us to make, that you know we need to make. Holy Spirit, illuminate this text in our minds and our hearts. 
Help us to apply it to our lives and to the lives we live out there in the world. Help us to not expect to be met with eagerness, with happiness, with grace, if we're living like this. Help us to be prepared for that and to not back down. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.